Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Welcome back to the show. It is Parenting. It's Stephanie Preisner sitting in for Sean and we have Joanna Fortune. Hello, Joanna. Hi, Stephanie. How are you getting on? I'm good, good. And yourself? I'm I'm the best. We will jump <laughs> right in uh, with our questions. Uh, this one is um, about a 16-year-old. I have discovered my 16-year-old son has been hoarding food in his bedroom. I was doing a yearly clothes clear out and I came across packets and packets of food, mainly sweets and crisps, all empty and stuffed into drawers. I filled a black bag with the wrappers. I asked him about them and he started crying and then refused to speak. It was like he regressed in front of my eyes to a younger boy. I told him he wasn't in trouble, but when he's ready, let's talk. That was days ago and I know he's been avoiding me. I know that I feed him enough and I didn't think I denied him sweets, but he must think that as he has been buying these out of his pocket money and not telling us why would he hide this that's what I don't understand and then be so visibly upset it took me aback I don't want him to have a bad relationship with food but I feared that horse has bolted any advice is very welcome Oh, there's so much in this, Stephanie, isn't there? Like this is it's so hard as a parent to discover something because immediately we're we all, it's almost as parents were predisposed to join the dots really quickly and come to a conclusion of this is really bad. This is really bad. I, I think you've had a shock. I think that's very clear. I think you need to come back on this, though. And actually, I'm going to suggest a conversation while you're in the car or while you're out for a walk, something that allows him that bit. It's not so intense as you coming into his room. This is what I've discovered. But you're able to now with the benefit of a few days or a week or so's distance, you're able to now say, look, while we're in the car, you're just going to bring up. I want to go back to what happened. You know, I I think how I approached you about it, I was really upset. I was really worried. I thought there was something wrong. And I think that came across in how I said it. Now that we've had time to have a think about it, I just want you to know that I'm here to listen. I'm here to help and support you in any way I can. And what that means is that this conversation is rooted in acceptance and empathy. You are not there to demand explanations. Why are you doing this? What is this about? Because he may not know and you may not know and you may not either of you, by the way, understand it. It's okay to not understand it because I think he probably doesn't either. But you're going to meet him in that place of not knowing together and say you're not alone in it. I'm going to help you find a way through this and see what's going on, because I know this parent is going to that place of, well, I I don't think he's hungry. I'm sure I feed him enough and I don't withhold treat foods. This isn't about hunger. You know, sometimes emotional dysregulation, how we're feeling in ourselves, how we're feeling about ourselves internally about ourselves in relation to others, about ourselves in our environment, be that school, be that home, be that society, be that wherever, is just too much. And we can seek comfort or soothing in something like food. Food is very regulating. So when we're dysregulated, and many of us listening will have a a reaction to this as well, because if anyone listening, I'd wager it's most of us, if I ask you, have you a comfort food? Something is going to come to your mind. And when is it that you reach for that comfort food? In a time of distress or disappointment or frustration, in other words, a time you need comfort. So it's not unusual to seek comfort in food. I'm not saying it's the best strategy or anything like that. I'm just saying it's not unusual. But if it's at an over and above level, where it's not an infrequent comfort food that he's seeking, but he's seeking comfort in food at an over and above level. It's pronounced, it's amplified, it's pervasive. It's something he's doing maybe on a daily basis. 
then it is something that I think you guys will need some extra support with. And that could take the guise of having a conversation with your GP, if you, especially if you or he has a good relationship with the GP and seeking a referral to appropriate, you know, adolescent mental health services. I, I'm always, you know, Stephanie, at the moment, very, I say that with a caveat because I'm very aware and mindful of the chronic waiting lists in both our public and private system. So I think it would be no harm to do that. Get on a waiting list or two. And at least then when you do get offered an appointment, you can see where are we with this now? Do we still need to avail of that appointment rather than waiting? Because the later you seek that referral, the longer the wait will be. But I just think that, you know, he may be using food to fill a gap. You know, sometimes people hoard food to ensure they never feel hungry. They never have to feel a lack. So you might be finding food in the room that I'm just having there just in case I might need it. Either way, there is an emotional charge around food. When you confronted him, he responded by crying, refusing to speak. He regressed in front of your eyes. That's a shame based response. For all of those reasons, I think it would be a good idea to reach out for some suitably qualified third party support with this. And in the meantime, lots of acceptance and empathy, even if it means going back and saying, I don't think I handled that really well in the moment because I was shocked. Can I try again? I just want you to know I'm here to listen to and support you. Great, thank you. We're going to move on to a five-year-old now. I'm a single mother of a five-year-old girl. I separated in January from my ex. My daughter and I moved in with my mum and she's attending the local primary school. Her teacher said she's a bit quiet, but she does have some friends. The separation and move from our family house has been a big adjustment for her and she's moved through different stages of grief. She sees her dad for 24 hours at the weekend and video calls him twice a week. But recently she's exhibiting perfectionist tendencies. She gets quite frustrated if things aren't exactly as she'd like them to be. I know a certain amount of this might be normal and it might be her way of trying to control things. She's quite temperamental and whiny. She gets upset and frustrated very easily. I try to stay as calm as possible and ask her if she needs help, but I'd like to find some ways of helping her to cope. I have been trying to get her to blow out candles on each finger and she likes doing that, but it's not really enough. When she makes a mistake with a picture, she scribbles the whole thing out and scrunches it up. I try to say that I understand that she wanted it to be perfect and that she must have been frustrated and that it's fun to just draw but she tells me to stop talking. She gets frustrated if she thinks people aren't listening to her. I tried to explain that sometimes other people are having conversations in the background, but it doesn't mean that I'm not listening to her. I'd be very grateful for any advice you can give me. I've been considering getting play therapy, but I can't really afford it. I just want to start by telling this parent, you are doing a great job at a difficult time. And it's not that what you're saying or asking or explaining is wrong. Quite the opposite. You're nailing that. It's more that in an anxious state of mind, she's going to struggle to process your words, hence her saying, stop talking, just be quiet. You know, it's it's a bit like if you imagine, and we often hear that phrase said, I flipped my lid when this happened or so-and-so flipped their lid. When we flip our lids, what we're really talking about from an emotional brain perspective is that part of our brain that allows us to engage in thinking and reasoning and rationaling that executive function. It's offline. We flipped it. And what's calling the shots is the more limbic emotional area of our brain firing all those fight, flight, freeze impulses at us. And in that state of mind, when I flip my lid and you come at me with your well-meaning, accurate, informed words, I cannot take them in and process it because the part of my brain that I need to do that is not really available to me. I'm emotionally aroused. And we have to find a way to speak 
to that emotional part of her brain. And that isn't with words. That's about doing communication instead of talking it. And what I specifically mean by that is playing lots of play. She's five years old. Play is very much her language. Play is how she makes meaning of all of the experiences in her life any day. But this year that you guys have had has been particularly difficult. And after any kind of a loss, be that a death or be it a separation, you know, a house move, any kind of upheaval or displacement like that, there is a year of first, the first birthday, the first Easter, the first summer, the first Christmas that we're not together in our old house as a family. And she's still very much as are you, by the way, in that year of firsts, I think do a lot of sensory input play. So lots of messy play, Play-Doh, sand, water, bubbles, Play-Doh, just getting re making music together, dancing, rhythm, synchrony, swaying around, anything like that that's going to trigger the parts of her brain that are associated with regulation and getting back into sync with you. When you want her to calm down, you have to be the calm through which she is calmed. So that means very much checking in with yourself, you know, really think, well, what's happening within me when she gets that upset? And am I responding from that place? I really, you know, the perfectionist tendencies is another one. And we've spoken about perfectionism here. And if anyone is interested, particularly in that, I do have a podcast episode, Stephanie, up that is on perfectionism or the imperfection of perfect perfectionism, I think it's called. But in this context, I don't think this is pure perfectionism that this little girl is experiencing. I think it's a bid to feel in control over a situation she has little to no control in because they have been big adult life decisions that she has been impacted by. And that's how it's supposed to be. They are adult decisions. They're not hers. But I think it can lead to this. As a young child, you have so little control over things in your life anyway. So where she can exert high levels of control, such as a drawing, a painting, things going exactly as she wants them to do, that is where she's playing out those. So encourage activities where the focus is on participation over achievement. And for yourself, again, bringing this back to this parent, ensure you're modeling healthy self-talk and practicing healthy coping skills to better manage disappointment. And something that came up for me, you know, that when she makes the mistake in a picture and then she scribbles out or tears up the whole picture, there's a lovely children's book by Barney Salzberg, I think his name is. It's called Beautiful Oops. And it's a really lovely book that celebrates mistakes and promotes that we can learn and create out of mistakes, that out of those things that don't go to plan comes something beautiful. So the book has things like dog-eared pages or coffee stains, rings from cups, and shows how you can turn that into something beautiful. So nothing is ever ruined. It's an opportunity to recreate something out of that and to learn from mistakes. I think that could be a nice developmentally appropriate and playful way to approach this with her. Great. Thank you. An 11 year old now, my 11 year old, almost 12, has started asking lots of questions about starting secondary school next year. He's going to a school that none of his friends are going to, but his other brothers are going there, which is the main reason he wanted to go there. But we didn't pressure him either way. Now I feel like he's second guessing his decision and asking how many will be in his year, how he will make friends. Should he do something special to try and make new friends? I've told him just to be himself and he will make friends before he knows it. I've also told him that his current friends are going nowhere and he can still see them in the 
the evenings and at football and at the weekends. I think his older brothers are teasing him and now he's worried about how much bigger secondary school is. He's the type of boy who will dwell on on this every day right up until starting and he will freak himself out. How do I nip this in the bud? It's only December and we have another eight months before he starts. I know. It's, I was thinking, gosh, he's really starting this early. Now, this is what I would call a context specific worry. It's not pervasive. It's not that he's an anxious child across all aspects of his life. This is very specific about being anxious about starting a new school where he will know nobody. So I, I emphasize that, Stephanie, because I just think as parents in our desire that our kids be OK, and that they manage things. We have to be wary of asking them to do difficult things and not find those things difficult to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there is an incongruence in that, that going to a new school that is much bigger than anything he's known before, going from being the eldest in a small school to the youngest in a big school, adding in that I don't know anyone there and his older brothers are unhelpful in this regard. Of course, that's a difficult task. Of course, he's finding that difficult. So in lots of ways, his worry is context specific and it is congruent with the task at hand. So I just want to de-psychopathologize some of that and say, come at him and acknowledge you're finding this difficult because do you know what? It is difficult. And I'm here to listen and support you through that. I would have a chat, by the way, with the older brothers, do a bit of stop, start, keep. You know, guys, you've been in the school. You could be really helpful in that you keep talking about it. But I'd like you to stop scaring him and start talking to him about how it's going to be positive and what's good about it. So keep talking about school because you know it. Stop scaring him because it's really not helpful start talking about the other aspects of school he's going to like and be very structured and specific with them in that. I'd also see, is there an activity he can do um, even now and over the next eight months or a maybe not at Christmas, but coming up towards Easter and Easter camp um, that he could do with kids who are outside his typical peer group. So not the kids he's in school with or already playing football with, but maybe kids who he'd have a shared interest with, but would be, that's why I think some are holiday camps, uh, activity camps are a good thing because they attract children from lots of different schools and your children have the opportunity to master the tension rousing experience of having to introduce themselves to new people, form new connections, make new relationships. And that's good practice for him. Mm-hmm. I think lots of nurture, lots of support and acceptance and empathy here. This is difficult. That's why you're finding it difficult. We're here to help you through it. Just to put you on the spot, we have a couple of mm-hmm. minutes for this last one. Uh, yes. Our daughter has been attending creche for the last 12 months. She used to nap there at 11.30, which is the same time as she'd nap at home. But now she's been moved, moved to a new room and the nap time is 1.30. We tried to get the staff to get her down, but it's hit and miss and she won't nap at all in creche. She's been protesting naps at home all day and then she'll conk at 4 or 5 p.m. because she's exhausted. Any suggestions um, of bedtime now and any su- any suggestion of bedtime can start tantrums we've been trying to get her to bed earlier any suggestions welcome okay i mean there's a whole lot here that i am not going to have an answer to so i'm going to keep this really simple i don't know how old this child is but generally speaking children are going to nap until they're about three years old i'm guessing she is under three years old and again that it's not that prescriptive. There'll always be exceptions to the rule, the kids who stop napping at two and the ones who keep doing it till four. Um, but perhaps she wasn't ready routine wise to move rooms. She may have been ready age wise and developmentally, but routine wise not. And I'm wondering, and this is a genuine wonder because I don't work in a childcare facility, so I don't know what the crash they are best placed to um, answer this question. 
But I'm wondering if it's possible for her to join her old room for their nap time when it was at the time she was used to. So napping is normalized in a room where there are younger children. And could she simply return to that room for the nap time? Again, I don't know, Stephanie, there may be a very sort of logistical answer to that that I'm not aware of, because what's happening in this letter is the parent is describing a very tired, overwrought child who is behaving like a very tired, overwrought child. And it's it just sounds to me overall that you need a meeting with your crush to explore with them mm-hmm. what they're thinking and feeling about this because together you have to reestablish her routine because it's not working for her now. In in the short term, most toddlers are ready for bed. I'm going to say most toddlers um, by about 6.30, 7.30. I know there's exceptions to that. There's also gen- 35 year olds ready for bed at that time. I, I Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. They're usually the parents of those toddlers. Um, but aim for play in the evening and an activity. So something very connected, not screen time, but then bring her into bath, story, bed, maybe by 6 p.m. So if her typical bedtime is 6.30, move it to 6 p.m because of the lack of nap and see, you know, during this kind of witching hour when she's tending to fall asleep on you, the disaster nap of your day, try to fill that with play, engagement, movement, dancing stories, and then begin a, a gradual wind down into the bath bed so that she's in her bed going to sleep by six. That could help. I don't it, for one moment may mean that to sound. Oh, Joanna, that's it. Cracked it. That's easy. I know toddlers and bedtime is not. And the big challenge you have here is the lack of routine and the disruption to her routine. I would make a, a, a not a conversation at the door, a pick up or drop off, but ask for a sit down meeting with her, her childcare um, support staff. Joanna Fortune, thank you so much. And a text came in there saying the ISPCC run a super programme in sixth class and first year called Smart Moves aimed at supporting children through this transition. So for anyone uh, that was about the 11 year old who's starting secondary school. Um, Thank you, Joanna. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.